Okay, so this is the start of podcast number two of Kendrick Bennett podcast, right? Yeah, we haven't. Yet. We still don't have a name. I'm still for this, working right? on that. I'm getting there. And we have a guest today, Jim Kempner, uh, who today is the first day we've ever met, uh, Kevin. Too. Yeah, yeah, I met him in the elevator on the way up. I could just feel it. I, I was like, "This is the guy." I just, I just have a feeling. Yeah, he was lost, and yeah. I was lost. But, but you've been here, so it's really. Yeah, but I can never remember. Like this is fifth, your neighborhood, Jim. Fifth floor. Well, yes, but floor. I don't. I don't know every elevator. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Jim Kempner, for a little introduction, and if I get this wrong, please correct me. Uh, owns the Jim Kempner Fine Art Gallery at five hundred one West Twenty Third Street. How long have you been there? Twenty three years. Twenty three years. I know. Wow. 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 Yeah. So do you own that building? No. Or, no. Because then I'd be. So you have a user. gracious landlord. <laughs> uh, yes. Actually, we've become good friends, and uh -huh. so he doesn't want to get rid of me. So that's the only reason I'm still there, I think. So I have to admit, and I know nothing about the art market, other than what I pick up from popular culture or the newspaper. Do you know anything about it, Kevin? Um, I know what I like. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate when people say that. In the music world, that's like people's way of saying, like, uh, you think you know more about music than me, but yeah. um, whatever. Um, I know a little bit. I have certain artists that I really like. George Gross, I really like. What contemporary artists? Uh, yeah, he's he's. No, wait, wait. How is that you, considered uh, contemporary? Uh, no, <laughs> well, <laughs> he's probably been dead sixty years. I, but That's probably I, you know, not contemporary. Uh, okay. I'm, okay, not contemporary. I guess like modern. modern. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, yes. And so, how do you keep up? How do you even know that you like him? Or where do you see his work? I can't remember where I saw his work first, but I, then I just started going looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um. And I got really like his his style is very sort of grotesque in in a way and perverse at times. And that appeals to you. Um, yeah. And his, <laughs> his use of color, his colors are really bold, mm -hmm. you know, it mixes watercolor and ink in cool ways. And and there's and there's a cool political element. It's like a lot of like, you know, a lot of his stuff was informed by the fact that these great medical advances in World War I meant that soldiers were coming home with these terrible injuries. Wow. And so he, a lot of his stuff is like, you know, these crazy soldiers with like So you know what he's talking about, Jim? Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, it's yeah? very gruesome. I, I don't know anyone who would pick out George Gross. I mean, great artist. And oh, I actually, love his stuff. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. My, my band is actually called A Big Yes and a Small No, which is a play on his... His autobiography. Oh, is that right? Which translates oh, to wow. a small, uh, a small yes and a big no. So does his is does his art sell well in the secondary market? Uh, it it's not my market, you know. Uh -huh. So uh, there's certain works that probably do very well, but but it's it's difficult work. So it it you know it hasn't taken off like a Picasso. Oh, or Matisse. his work is difficult work. Yes, his I his see. imagery, like the war imagery, and and the you know even the nudes that he Prostitutes, does, are big heavy yeah. women, and uh, but b beautifully drawn. I mean, just fantastic. You know, yeah, it's I, oil or sketching or. Uh, well, he did oils, but I know mostly his works on papers, drawings, uh -huh. and uh, um, and he did a lot of prints as well. So how did you get started in the art market? Oh my wife, That's my wife, story. everybody should know that my wife knows you, uh, yes. directed you even in a reading recently. So that's great. So you started out as a stand-up comic or a well, actor or what? Well, what? yes, <laughs> it is a long story, but I was in living in California. Are you from California? Born no, in, from no. New Jersey. Uh-huh. Went to school in Washington, went to Miami when Washington, I was- Washington, D.C.? Yeah, went to American University. Oh, Okay. Ended up after college, I worked for the- And what degree yeah. did you get at American University? Math. Math? Yeah. 
Ah, this okay. Guy full of surprises. Oh no, no, over no, here. no! I'm not math. I'm sorry. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it was accounting. Accounting. I started as a math major. Uh huh. But then calculus three came, and I was like, I, I have see. no idea. Yeah. I used to get like A's, calculus one and two, but I really didn't. Yeah, understand. that happened in math with me too. I hit linear algebra, and then I dropped math because <laughs> I, I couldn't I deal with it. I didn't yeah. understand calculus. Yeah, I could yeah. do the equations, yeah. but I didn't get what it was. You know, so I quit. And I, you know, I was thinking of everything else, philosophy, you name it. But then accounting, my father was a businessman. He goes, you know, it's like math. And mm -hmm. so I went in there, you know, temporarily. And that's what I graduated. I never wanted to be an accountant in my life. But that's, mm -hmm. uh, I ended up, I went to Miami. I opened up an Italian ice business for a year. There was a great Italian ice guy in uh, New how Jersey. How do you end up in Miami opening up a well, <laughs> Italian? I mean, how does well, that happen? Because there was a, Papa Grillo was this 80-year-old Italian guy in New Jersey that had the most amazing Italian ice, you know, lemon with the seeds uh -huh. and the old-fashioned, you know, uh, uh, wood, wood like crate that he would put ice in and salt and yeah. the whole. And so he used to have lines around the block. And I was looking for some, I don't know in what In Jersey. I was, in New Jersey, yeah. yeah. And he was open four months a year. And I'm like, if, uh -huh. if we go someplace warm, we could do it all year round. And so a friend and I from college- he, So you're an entrepreneur. Well, yeah, yeah I okay. guess I was then. And uh, so that lasted about a little- well, uh, So you, you decided to move to Miami? Yes. Okay. Yes, went to Miami. My friend, Ed Oppenheimer, Eddie O, we called him. So we named the uh, Italian ice was Jimmy O's. <laughs> Sounded very Italian. Two, okay. two nice Jewish boys. Jimmy O's <laughs> Italian ice. And what year or decade are we talking about? <laughs> that was 79. 79, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to teach people what Italian ice was. Uh, we, we bought like a used truck, a used batch freezer to make the ice. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We borrowed $5,000 from our fathers. And uh, then we found a little store. And it was it was like a block off of Route 1. Mm -hmm. But it could have been a million miles. You know, one of those, like... <laughs> yeah. My father had always said, he was a, you know, businessman, had a, had a lumber yard. He said, business, location, location, location. Mm -hmm. But you know what he forgot to tell me? Location. <laughs> so I didn't learn that lesson, and so, but, and I mean, we had great ice, and there was an article in the in the uh, Miami Herald about it, and that, and that day we were busy as could be, but you know, it so was, how long did that last? Uh, we were there a little over a year. So you're in Miami, yeah, in the late seventies, early eighties, yeah, yeah. And my understanding, I did like a quick like refresher about the art market, or like googled yes, it, yes. And I learned one thing. I learned is Miami is really big in the art market. Well, it wasn't then. It wasn't then. Not at all. So no. there's no relationship it be in being in Miami and you ending up in the art business. No. no. I had, I mean, I, I liked art. I went to American National Gallery, you know, uh, I had my favorites, but no, art was the last thing on my mind. Uh -huh. So we, we left, we actually sold the business. It was like a miracle because there was a place that would sell businesses. I mean, we were, we were through and there was a, uh, a gentleman from Guata, uh, Guatemala, and he had a family, young family, that he wanted to put into a business. And it was like $10,000 we sold it for, and which was amazing. We paid our fathers back like most of the money, and then we went to Club Med. And it was like, <laughs> and it was, it was great. And then I lo loaded everything in my Honda Civic and drove to California. 
I had friends in San Francisco. My brother was living and working in Big Sur. So now we're in the 80s and you're in California. Early 80s. January. LA or San Francisco? or? Uh, well, I drove through LA. My cousin was an actress in LA and, and her husband was a very successful stand-up comedian. Went to Big Sur, visited my brother, and he said, you got to... You got to stay. We need a, for our softball team, we need a center fielder. <laughs> and, uh, and then he took me to Esalen. You ever been to Esalen? Uh, the hot tubs? Why is that familiar? No. Uh, Esalen are the hot tubs, like a new agey place. So it's, it's a natural hot tubs? Yes. Natural springs? Nat- natural So hot it's tubs. not on the coast, it's inland? It's somewhere? right on the coast. It's right on the coast? You're literally on the cliff. North the of ocean. L.A.? Yes, it's it's three hour, two and a half hours south of San Francisco. Oh, okay. And if you take Route One, it's probably I don't know seven hours from L.A. or something. You know, uh, it's God's country. Mm-hmm. There's a God. That's His country. Mm-hmm. I think. You know. I mean, the last episode of Mad Men was shot at Esalen when he's doing the. He's kind of yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, what you know, and I was really anxious then because I didn't know what the hell I was going to be doing. Like I, I had an accounting degree. And I was going to San Francisco. I was going to try to get a county. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when, once I hit the hot tub, I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm your center fielder. So I <laughs> stayed in Big Sur. I worked at Ventana, which is like a fancy uh, hotel. Do you know Ventana? No. It's incredible. So now you're in the hospitality business. Now I'm, I'm a desk clerk. <laughs> okay. And I, I became a senior desk clerk. I, I uh, went right through the ranks. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's a really special place. Uh, Big Sur. So I was there for about eight months. Mm-hmm. And then you get burnt out because there's a lot of drugs and there's not a lot to do. You know, it's like a little community, a lot of cocaine was going on. And, and, and uh, so what happened was I grew up with the son of Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh-huh. We, we, you mean the guy that founded it or The guy that founded it, it uh-huh. uh, uh, lived in Westfield, New Jersey, where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. And his son and I were good friends. We took bar mitzvah lessons together, you know, so that's <laughs> okay. how long... So, <laughs> And his father called, they were going to open up a store. All the stores were like New Jersey, New York. They were going to open their first store west of New Jersey in, in uh, Woodland Hills, California. That was the eighth store in the chain. He was looking for someone to go out with the manager to help. And he, you know, he knew me. He trusted me. He said, you know, I don't so know. So you gonna... worked in the first Bed Bath & Beyond? No, no. The first one, out California. Of... Oh, in California. The eighth okay. one in the chain. Gotcha. Although when I was 15, 1970, I unloaded the, the truck of pillows for the first Bed, Bath, and Beyond. Mm-hmm. It was called Bed and Bath. I was going to say, back then it was just Bed and Bath. Yeah. It hadn't gone beyond <laughs> yet. Oh, you beyond. knew that? No, I, I was okay. actually going to make that joke, but apparently that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Look did, at that. It did not go beyond until I quit. <laughs> then then it went like way beyond. Um, <laughs> so how long were you at Bed, Bath, and Beyond? So I was six years. So I was in LA for three years. And uh, so when I was in LA, I was working like crazy. You know, open up these stores. It was like you're just working twelve hours, and and you hadn't at this point discovered your acting or comedic chops. Yet. Uh, well, no. I mean, I, I had fiddled around with with comedy. Uh, actually, when I was in LA, um, at the first store in Woodland Hills, I knew that a, someone I went to camp with named Jay Fenichel was was an actor in LA. And anyway, we started talking, and I told him I was you know, doing bed bath, but I was also writing. I was always writing. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, we're going to do a uh, show about um, uh, the news, like a comedy about the news, kind of like this is- And this is in was. LA. This is in LA, got 1980. Mm-hmm. And so we got together and uh, he said, we're going to have a meeting with a, with a number of writers. You want to write some stuff. It's about, you know, just the current news. So 
of course, I wasn't a writer, you know. So I wrote a bunch of jokes about different, you know, things from the news. You know, I wrote like eight pages of different bits. And uh, so we go to this meeting. There's like 10 people and a bunch of writers. They're real writers. And the first guy goes and he reads like his thing. It's like a page. Not really funny. And it was like. So you're in the audience. Yeah, I'm, I'm just in this meeting. It's a writer's room. Oh, in the meeting. Kind of oh, right. I see. Got it. And, and the old guy whose house we were at mm-hmm. was this great old actor. And I knew him from the Twilight Zone. Really? And, 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 oh, man, I love the Twilight oh, Zone. Oh, man. Well, yeah. I can't think of his I'll have I'm to think sure of I'd name. recognize him because uh, yeah, yeah. I've watched them all like five times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, uh, he was a great old guy. It's just, just, and so this guy goes and okay. And then, and then, and then I go and I read my stuff, you know, and, and, and they're just like laughing. And especially the old guy. I mean, he's laughing his head off, you know. And, and he goes, kid, you got it. I was like, oh my God, I got it. <laughs> I was like, wow, I got it. I mean, that was such an important thing to hear, you know, like, I don't so know. So what did you do with that? Well, that's, mm. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that always the, yeah, the right. question? <laughs> you, you couldn't let him bask in that moment. Yeah, anyway. right, yeah, right. Thanks a lot, Gary. Yeah. Um, but so that, that show didn't go anywhere. That was never made. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Jay Fenichel, who was a, an actor and his friend Kevin Hall, uh, Jay. So Jay was like this five foot eight Jewish guy from New York. Kevin Hall was seven foot black uh, friend of his. So they wanted to do stand up comedy together, and he asked me if I would write, you know. And I said I've never done it, but sure, I'll try. The first thing you I mean together on the stage, this tall black guy, right. and this like short, like comedic white guy. duo style, yeah. like the old yeah. days, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I thought like Abbott and Costello, a, or, yeah. What a great visual, uh-huh. just to begin with, you know. Mm-hmm. So of course, my idea was to play off of that. Duh, right? So I yeah. wrote stuff about you know his basketball and I mean the different the differences and everything, mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't want they didn't want that they didn't want to call attention to that. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. um, so I was like, so they didn't like what I wrote, and uh, and I, I I don't know. I mean, after that, like I I lost touch with them, and I I think I kind of like I don't know my feelings were hurt or whatever. I I, I don't remember, but. Then he like months later he called me. He said we're gonna we're going on on at the comedy store, you know, open mic, whatever. You mm-hmm. come watch. I said sure, you know. So I came and watched, and and they had a whole bit they had written. Uh, wasn't funny, but they were really talented. I mean, they were good actors. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were they had good timing, good delivery, but the jokes weren't great. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. really. It wasn't even mm-hmm. jokes. It was like they were building, and they had had these these like fake bricks that they were building on stage. I don't know. You know, that's what happens when you first do comedy. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you try to use uh, props because you don't, you know, you don't feel comfortable. Uh, that's what, when I eventually did the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so after that meeting, he, he asked me if I would consider writing again. And I was like, uh, he goes, yeah, you have thin skin in this town. You're not gonna, but uh, I never did. So from that experience, I started, uh, I, I auditioned for Harvey Lembeck's comedy improv class. Did you know Harvey Lembeck? He that was rings a bell. Yep. Yeah, he was a yeah, yeah, great yeah. He was comic then, actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stalag, Stalag fifty four, whatever it was, the great fifties. So movie. you're ta- you're ta- doing comedy classes, yeah. And how are you paying the rent out in Los Angeles? I'm still I'm still I'm still uh, at Bed Bath and Beyond. Still there. Okay. I kept trying to quit because I really wanted to try, you know, and uh, but every time I tried, they would give me a big raise, you know, and it was like okay, mm-hmm. but that didn't happen quite yet. That was. But um, so were you th- living in the valley? I'm living. Well, I lived in 
in LA, I had about 10 addresses because I opened up a number of stores. I lived in, first I couldn't afford to live alone. So I lived in this horrible house in Woodland Hills. Then I lived in, 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 a, in a house in Hollywood Hills. I rented a room from some guy mm-hmm. and I rented a room from this woman in, in LA. And then I finally got my own apartment in Reseda. And then I lived in Laguna Beach and Hermosa Beach uh, all like for three and years. Most people I know that live in LA never move back east, even if they came from back east, because they yeah. sort of fall in love with the weather and all that. Yeah, so, you know, I I kind of so, I liked LA. Yeah. Um, so so how did how did the entertainment thing happen, and so and how did that lead to the art market? Yeah. So here's what happened. So, uh, I finally had a little extra money, and I wanted to buy a piece of art. So I wanted to buy a Miro print. What? Now wait, wait, wait. So that that's a big leap. So yeah. how did you go from not being interested in art to wanting to buy a piece of art? Well, I I liked art. I liked looking at art. And when I lived mm-hmm. in Big Sur, mm-hmm. there was a gallery, Coast Gallery, and they had a lot of Henry Miller, the author, mm-hmm. did watercolors, yeah. and he did some prints. And there was a beautiful print of Blueface. It was called Blueface, and uh, I always had my eye on that. It was like so. Was that your first like? awareness of art that was kind think? of my first awareness uh of like buying art like oh, okay. you could it's for sale and you know it was 500 dollars, and which is more than i could spend on a piece but um my brother introduced me to henry miller's daughter because henry miller had a house in big sur and he'd been very sick then so I went to his house I, and I bought it for $250, half price. Wow. And I bought Blueface, which still hangs on my wall. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. And what's really amazing, so that day she was in a rush. She had to go to LA because Henry was, was sick, you know? And the next day when I come to work to the, to the Ventana, they go, did you buy that Henry Miller? I go, yeah. He goes, you're rich. I'm, what are you talking about? You know, he died last oh, night. Oh, my God. So I still have the receipt that she signed with the date. That Henry died. So the value of it went up dramatically. No, it after really he didn't. Away? It didn't. You know, that's sort of the myth. Oh, okay. But you know, that was the. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't think of it in, in those terms. But that was the first thing I bought. So when I went to L.A., I wanted to buy something else, and I always liked Miro, and I knew Miro lithographs when I lived in New York because he used to go past the stores of that sold like probably Warhol and Miro. So and help Chicago. me with this. What's a lithograph? A lithograph is a type of a print. So print is the headline, and then underneath you have a lithograph, a woodcut, an etching, a silk screen or screen print. Those are all kinds of prints. So this is a way for an artist to make multiple copies of a single piece of art? Well, no, not really, because what I got involved in, and real uh, original prints are not based on, they're not reproductions. I see. Like a lot of people think they are, because some people come in the gallery and they'll go, how much is the original? Mm. And it's like saying like a dollar bill, how much is the original? Where's the original? Well, it's a plate that's printed from. Yeah. A lithograph printed from a stone uh, where you draw on the stone with a, with a crayon that's oily, mm-hmm. so it resists water. So you draw it, and then you ink it whatever color you want, let's say blue. You wipe it with a sponge. It wipes all the the paint except where you were drawn in with the greasy ink. And that's how you get the, and it was invented in, in the 1700s. And so artists would make only one copy? Uh, no, no, they would purposely do it so they could make many copies. Okay. And, uh, but so when you were saying that it's an original, each copy is an original. Is that what you're saying? That's right. But, but it, there are multiple it's copies It's not unique, of it. exactly. Yeah, it's not yes. unique. Okay. Right. Um, and it gets confusing because nowadays a lot of, 
a lot of prints are digital, and a lot of them are really reproductive. There's there's Basquiat prints. Mm-hmm. You know, Basquiat died 20, 30 years ago. He didn't do a lot of prints, but his father took paintings, and he made screen prints, great images, and he signed them. The father signed them. Mm-hmm. They were never meant to be prints, and they've since he started doing that, they've made like a dozen different images, and some of them sell for hundred thousand dollars. So, Jean Michel Basquiat. Yes. That, said, so his skull. So that was not a print, right? That was an actual painting. Yes. Because that sold for over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. That made the. Yeah. If that I was a that print, made the New York Times. Then I'd be in the Bahamas that. also if, if prints were selling <laughs> yeah. for that. But there, there are million dollar prints, etchings. Uh, Is that right? Yes, Picasso has sold um, uh, etchings for three million dollars. And so when you say etchings again, that's multiple copies of one right thing. In I that see. case, he drawn on a on a copper plate. I see. And ink. It's like a fantastic image. Very small edition. All right. So getting back to L.A. Yeah. Okay. We're in L.A. and now we're going to buy a, a mural print. Okay. So I I see a little ad in the in the L.A. Times, a private dealer in his apartment. He's selling. Miro and all Picasso, all different names. And so I went to see him. Jack Rutberg is his name. And, you know, we walked in and he said, you know, tell me what you're what you're interested in. And I said, Well, I want a Miro print. And he said, he said, Well, do you know what a print is? <laughs> okay. And I said, Do I do I know what a print is? <laughs> no. Actually I don't. <laughs> you know. And so he he spent an hour with me showing me and he had prints from like the eighteenth century and 19th century and he had picasso and he had he had uh, some goya prints and and uh and after an hour he he opens the drawer with the miro lithographs and by the time he did that i i wasn't even interested in miro i was just so on fire about prints and printmaking mm-hmm. and i never bought anything from him but jack is a good friend now many years later he has a fantastic gallery in la mm-hmm. he's an amazing dealer but then he was private and so I started to spend a lot of my free time that I wasn't doing improv and stuff. I was, I was going to museums. I was going to, uh, uh, and looking at prints and, and buying books on printmaking and the history of printmaking. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when you realize that before photography, and if you wanted to know what a flower looked like, you know, in Italy and in Germany, they would do prints and that's how they would be able to disseminate mm-hmm. the uh, information in books, you know, yep. when they started doing the early woodcuts. Mm-hmm. That was what changed my life, that, that meeting. That meeting. But I didn't, it's not like I wanted to be an art dealer. So your first steps were to accumulate or buy art. Um, definitely not accumulate, but I started, the first print that I bought then was a, uh, a Goya etching from 1799. But the thing about, like you were talking about photo, uh, photographs, the etching plates back then, when Goya died in 1820 or whatever, they, they still printed them. So there was like like 12 different editions done from this set of prints. Los Caprichos, very famous, uh, very political. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bought one that was printed in like 1880. Are they still printing them today? No, I don't I don't I don't believe so, but they had they did into the 20th century. You wow. know, I don't okay. know, I don't really actually know, but there's a book when you go in, you can look at the book and it tells you what the paper was printed on. So you know each edition, how, like the 10th edition was actually better, according to this book, than the 4th edition because it was inked better and wiped cleaner. Um, and it was $75. That, that was the, you know, the cost of it. So that's what I started to do. I started collecting. I bought 19th century 
you know, mezzotints. And, and, and I, I bought, I, I really fell in love with seven, 17th century Dutch landscape etchings. And Rembrandt was one of the greatest printmakers back then. Of course, they were expensive. So I bought other ones that were printed. So when in, did it occur to you to sell one? Uh, isn't that your first step into the... That, yes, that, yeah, that, that would be the first step. So what happened was, this is actually very funny because talking about George Gross. I loved Kath uh, Kolvitz. Do you know her? No, I don't S know Same her. time period. Also German. Also Weimar Republic. Y yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and she did very intense imagery, a great printmaker. So these lithographs of like a child with its, with, with its baby, you know, grabbing onto it. One's called Death with the arms of like a skeleton around a figure. Um, and so I was interested in her work. So I went to this gallery and they had um, he, this old guy, Herbert Palmer in LA, and he opens up a drawer, it's KL, and he's flipping through and all of a sudden I see, and I happen to know because from having gone to galleries, John Lennon did some lithographs. Uh -huh. And so all of a sudden he, he shows two John Lennon lithographs from this, uh, a suite called Bag One from 1970. And I knew that, you know, on Union Square in, in San Francisco, they're asking $10,000 a piece for these, which is crazy price, but still, you know. So this guy- This is I, in the 80s after Lennon's death. Yes. Yeah. He died when I was first opening up the store in Woodland Hills. I got the news that, I mean, and I was like shook to the, to the core. Yeah. Um, big fan. And so I was he, on 72nd Street the night he- died really yes. wow on the upper west side and i think uh my then at the time wife uh and i saw the actual ambulance that went by oh god and that night we turned on johnny carson and the carson show was interrupted by the news that lennon was killed oh anyway getting yeah. back to you yeah. sorry so um yeah. uh so he opens up the drawer and he goes I, and i obviously i went like oh and he goes this is um and it was a portrait of John and Yoko. This is John Lennon. He was one of the Beatles. And this is <laughs> this is Yoko Ono. Uh, he, he, she was an artist and she, uh, oh, really? Okay. And so, and she, he had two really good ones from the set. And they were, he was asking $400 a piece. You know? Oh my God. Did you? Did you buy? Oh yeah. I said, well, what if I bought two? Well, I can give you 10%. Okay, good. So <laughs> I bought them for $360. One of them is on their honeymoon walking in, in Amsterdam, and uh, the other one was a portrait of the two of them. Very loose drawn. Yeah, the, I was just at a studio recently, and there was one of those that's like Yoko nude, and it's like, yeah, the style is, I know exactly what you're talking about. And are these unique, or are they prints? Uh, it, it depends, but probably the prints, because he did, out of the 14 lithographs, eight of them are erotic, and some of them are very, like, you know, there's a you know a, a blowjob, and then there's like a, then there's two 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 men in Yoko, and you know yeah. very. I mean, th th those are tough to sell. So uh, I bought that three hundred sixty dollars, and I framed one up on the wall. And then so we're still just a buyer and a collector. I'm just a buyer, but yeah. you know. But that's the first time you were like, oh shit, I can make money on that. I, I I'm like, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I could and I could keep one. So I put an ad in Rolling Stone magazine, ah. and uh, I got a call from this young woman who like loved Lennon and so excited. And so she came over and, and, and I sold one and it was pretty quick, like a month later for $2,000 cash. But so you bought it for 400, 360, 360, 360 and sold it for 2000. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of your story, but uh, just a quick question while it occurs to me, does the art market like the real estate market um, have crashes? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, worse than the real estate market, I would think. So I started dealing officially in 1987. I moved back to New York then. And, uh, and for two years, the market was like crazy. And I was just dealing in prints, but you could buy a print you know, for $10,000. And then, you know, a, a month later, it was selling for 20000 And then it was selling for 50000 It was that kind of craziness. Yeah. Japanese were really into contemporary art and prints. And they were, I mean, you'd go to auctions and, and they'd be, you'd be bidding on a David Hockney print. And there would be groups of, of, of Japanese collectors and they'd be like this, you know, they, they, waving their hands. In other words, not like this, and then waiting, they're just, well, we're, we're going to wave until we get it. Whatever, yep. we don't care what it says. Don't waste for. your time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would buy prints for $100,000 that were still being sold by the publisher who published them for 40 or stuff like that. That kind of crazy stuff was going wow. on. So, um, yeah, so, so, but by 1990, like February 1990 was sort of the height. And after that, it kind of went off a cliff. Is that right? Yeah. And it, did it take down like even Picasso art as well? Yeah. Everything dropped? Yes. Everything, certain things more than others. Some things just like, especially artists that, you know, were su- super hot, let's say in the 80s. And then all of a sudden, maybe nobody even wanted them. That Are kind there of private owners of like Rembrandt's? Or is it all Rembrandt and museums? Uh, there, 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 there are private owners, but it's pretty rare you know uh-huh. okay so now you're selling some john lennon stuff and making some money yeah in but, LA, but in all, LA. All the t- while i'm doing that i'm still working at bed bath and beyond right and i'm still doing uh, uh um improv and we're still in the 80s and we're still in the 80s so okay. so what happened uh, um we're making slow progress here we're still in the <laughs> yeah, 80s yeah okay. yeah, yeah, I, okay. yeah i know <laughs> um i see two things are going on in your head right stand-up comedy versus the art business uh, well art it, market. <laughs> the art market was not that was just something that i was having fun with i had yep. no thought so i wanted to quit bed bath and beyond and i did in 1986 finally mm-hmm. and i wanted to do stand-up comedy so i i moved to uh, i started doing comedy in la you know the open mics and then i moved to san francisco and i lived a block from the holy city zoo well the first so the first night that i actually I worked at an open mic night. I was I was the host mm-hmm. uh, at the Holy City Zoo, and that's you know Robin Williams used to bartend there. He kind of started there, and that night, so I was in you know introducing people and doing shtick, and uh, and Robin Williams shows up, and uh, I get to introduce Robin Williams my first night, uh-huh. you know, and I have it on tape. It's really kind of fun, um, uh, only because I was doing video stuff. There was a big TV on the screen, so I had a VCR that they were showing stuff of mine. And then they were also, she was taping me and she let me have the tape. She said, don't show this to anybody. I said, okay, you know, and I pretty much haven't, but, (laughs) um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, so then I quit and I said, quit, I quit bed, bath and beyond. Okay. I mean, they were throwing money at me and I, you know, um, I was like, you're in San Francisco, you're doing stand up there. Uh, yeah, I, well, I quit, I quit. I, I had enough money to pay the rent so you didn't have to get. A I had job? money to. Well, I no, I I got a job. I actually worked at a cool school called the Urban School, uh, which was a lot of talented uh, kids, like a high school for really talented. And I did. I was like in the office. I did bookkeeping, whatever that kind of stuff. So I was doing that during the day, and at night I'd go out and you mm-hmm. know, um, and work that, on your tight five. <laughs> go, and, go out and work on your tight five. You know, like your yeah, comedy. right. Yeah. And you brought all your art with you and hung it in your apartment in well, San Francisco. Uh, you know. 
when you say all that art, it wasn't that much. Okay. It was not a lot of art. You know, I had, and you know, I was buying the etchings that are like, uh, you know, 10 inches or eight inches, six inches, little, mm-hmm. little teeny things. I didn't have a big collection, but I, I, I started to, you know, collect and, and, um, but I had no thought of like, oh, I'm going to be an art dealer. And, mm-hmm. but I mostly, since I lived right by the Holy City Zoo, I would, you know, I could go on pretty much any time except for like the week, Friday, Saturday. But during the week, it was always like, you know, first come, if they know you, they'll put you on, you know, that kind of thing. So I was sort of honing it. Um, and uh, I was writing. I had a comedy uh, a teacher that I, that I, uh, that was very worthwhile. Um, and then I met my future wife, my future ex-wife, um, <laughs> on a trip with a friend. Uh, so I moved back to New York in 87. That's what got you back to New York? Yeah, I moved in with, with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and also, I, you know, I, I love New York. I love the East Coast. I have a lot of family and friends here. Okay, so and not to belabor the yeah. point, but so you're in San Francisco, you have a job, you have an apartment, you're uh, gainfully employed at the comedy clubs, right? And then suddenly- No, 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 no. I, I, I'm not gainfully, not gainfully employed, but you're, you're doing the routine. You're doing the comedy yeah, clubs. Yeah. And then you not move to New money. York. Yes. Is that because you fell in love, as Kevin uh, said? It, it was, you know, we, we kind of broke up right before that, and then we got back together, and it was partially that to, to, to try to make it work. But it was also, um, I, I think, I, I mean, there was tons of comedy clubs in New York, so I felt like I could come there and do it. And I, I kind of miss New York, you know? My family, I said, friends were here. Um, I think I was ready to make a move. So we've really roamed around a lot. Yeah. Jersey to like Miami to LA to San Francisco. Now we're back to New York. Yeah. Okay. And In the uh, late 80s? 87, 87. Late 87. And so I started to do comedy, but open mics. You know, I mean, nobody knew me. Uh, it wasn't like I had a reputation that was going to... And it was very difficult. Like New York was, you know, you'd go on at 12 in the in the morning and 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 my is a new york crowd tougher than a san francisco crowd uh i don't know i can't say for sure if that's the case but but uh it was probably it's it's usually you you know you always say i was a bad crowd you know but i think it's usually (laughs) (laughs) and my my girlfriend at the time would come and watch and she would be like like this you know so nervous and like made me made me nervous um so during the day i would go to galleries because I was interested in art, and I started to get interested in contemporary art, and I was, you know, I was collecting, so I walked in. Th- and in the late 80s, New York just blows away other art markets in the U.S. Because yeah. um, L.A. was not no, anything significant at all, no, and San no, Francisco not, was not. It was, no, wasn't it just it was New, York New York and Santa Fe or something? No, or? well, Santa Fe was, you know, its own little thing, yeah. Little, whatever you call it, Western, you know, uh, cowboy art. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it, it was New York. Uh-huh. But but I didn't know I didn't really know anything about the market or starting to to know uh, uh, about it. But there was a print publisher dealer on Fifty Seventh Street, Alex Rosenberg, and I saw he was having a fifty percent off sale. So I go in there and they have uh, these multiples. Um, they're three dimensional. They're like plastic, form plastic of George Siegel, the sculptor. Now do you, do you know George Siegel? If you go to the Whitney, there's a famous. He does like plaster of Paris. A famous one is like, it's this walk, don't walk sign. And there's these three people, all white plaster of Paris, you know, waiting from, from like the 60s. You know, big, important artists. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. I know what you're talking about. So this was the back of a nude woman called Gazing Woman. It was $2,500. So now it's $1,250, half price. And it's life-size? 
Uh, well, it's life side, but it's only from like the rear up to the neck. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And I said, this is pretty cool. And I and I just started to look at auction catalogs. I knew that that had sold at auction for around $2,000. And now it's $1,250. And there's a young salesman. I mean, he was like 17. He looked like he was, you know, not legal. I'm sure he was older. But I, I said to him, uh, and I wouldn't have had the nerve if he was like Alex Rosenberg, you know. I said, what if you're a dealer? He goes, you get an extra 50%. And I went, Extra 50% off? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm a dealer. So you just announced it. I announced it. You don't have to become a member of some association or anything? You just have to say, I'm a dealer. And he said, okay. And I was like, wow, I'm an art dealer. <laughs> and then I said, how many do you have? Now it's $625. Mm-hmm. I said, how many do you have? It was an addition of 200. We have 14 left. And this is like all the money I've saved up, right? I said, what if you buy all 14? right? 625, that's like $8,000. I see he goes down the hallway and he sticks his head in and I see this old guy, white hair. He's, he's whispering in his ear. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's going to come out. He's going to, you're not a dealer. Yeah. Get the hell out of here. You know? Yeah. yeah. Instead, the kid comes back and he goes, you get an extra 5%. I go, done. <laughs> so you bought all 14 of them. And uh, the last time you made money was on the John Lennon thing? Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. But, so you but had I, a taste of the fact that you could make money on yeah. buying and selling art. Right. And so that's what caused you to buy eight of the, or 14 of these. Well, I bought 14 of these. Yeah. You know, and I, I went home and I said, honey, I'm an art dealer. <laughs> and she was like, yay. How big, gonna, the, how big is each one of these things? Each one is like, is like. So you put 14, 14 26 in your and they're, and they're deep. You know, so the boxes are like 10 inches deep by uh-huh. 24 by, by uh, 20. And, uh. I never did comedy again after that. That that day, I mean, I came really? home. I was like, I'm an art dealer, and then all, and that the art the art market was exploding. 1987, 1987, late 1987, and so I became so busy all of a sudden. Um, the, the same thing happened at the Jewish Museum. My, my well, well, before you tell me about the Jewish Museum, yeah, you have 14 of these things, uh, bollocksing up your apartment. Yeah, okay. How do you get rid of them? How fast do they go? Uh, and how did you get rid of them? I called, you know, my friend Marty, who was a collector, the son of Bed Bath and Beyond, and uh, I think he bought one and his parents. Well, how much did you make on it? I bought them for like five hundred ninety-five dollars each, and I probably sold them. I, I honestly don't remember. But my guess is I probably sold them for like for maybe fifteen hundred, or maybe I sold some for a thousand right away uh-huh. just to try to you know get some money back. Um, so you doubled. Yeah, I doubled, doubled. And, yeah. And, and more than doubled, you know, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, it took, what, six months to get rid of them? I, I think so. I think that's that. Uh, that's all. I think they went okay. really, I kept one, you know. Um, I'm just trying to understand the addiction to it. Not the addiction, that's the wrong word. Uh, the uh, the appeal. Well, you know? but but while that was happening, yeah. right? You know, I get in, let's say I sell five and I have $6,000. I'm buying other art. So immediately I'm turning it over, I'm buying art. And that's that's all I did was, I had no money after a year. I only had art. And I had a lot of art because I was like, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and were you married enough. at this time? Uh, um, She's having second thoughts because of all the art? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I think she was happy I wasn't a comedian anymore. Okay. And her father was thrilled. Um, but no, we weren't married. We, we got engaged around then. We got married in 88. But this was late 87, 88, mm-hmm. you know. 
And um, I was just turning things over. So I'll tell you the mistake that a lot of people made when the market crashed. Which was what again? What year? Like 1990. Okay. Mid-1990. Not too long after you got into it. Right. So it was like yeah. 88, 89, like two and a half years. You're making money. Making yeah. money and really making art, making turning it into art. So all of a sudden I had like this really nice art collection, you know? But then the market went, whoo. And, and that affected your inventory. It mm-hmm. went down precipitously. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and you would, you would talk to some dealers back then, dealers that had been in business for a long time, a lot of private dealers. And I remember calling up and saying, you know, how much is this, you know, David Hockney? And they'd go 25,000. I'm like, 25,000? You know, it's just, it's selling for like 10,000. Well, I paid 20,000. Well, yeah, but it's, it's now it's worth 10. <laughs> and so, I, so some of these dealers, they would keep this art to the grave rather than lose money. That's uh-huh. the biggest mistake you could make as a business person. I mean, I learned that lesson early. So I took a lot of losses, tons of losses, losses on everything. Mm-hmm. But I was able to, so let's say I, I bought some- You were some, able to get some cash. Yep. Yeah. And yep. then with that cash, you could find good deals because mm-hmm. there was a lot of good deals people were looking to, you know. And by the way, was the art crash related to any other crashes going on? I don't recall. In well, 19- the, well, what happened was there was a big crash, Black Monday or whatever, in 87. Yes. But- but instead of the art market crashing, the art market, or maybe 88, maybe. And then- No, it was 87. It dropped uh, 10%, the Dow, I think. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, the art market went up like that for a couple of years. And then, so it wasn't- Oh, at so the there's same, a lag for between some the reason. stock market and the art yeah. world? Okay. Yeah. And I mean, not always, but that was in that case, you know? Mm-hmm. And just to get a larger picture of this- uh, so it crashed in 1989. Uh, if you look back, February 1990 is sort of like the height of some of the, you know, like the end of 89, beginning of 90. But then it was like by then the end down. of 90. And so since then, it's been a slow rise or it's experienced other crashes on the way up? Uh, no. It, it, well, it was down for a while. I a mean, while. the 90s, like the early 90s, you know, for, for years, number of years. Um I'm trying to put it in context. The Iraq war is going on in early 1990. When was Clinton elected president? 92. 92. 92. So the Clinton years, it was still bad. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, the early Clinton years, but by by the mid 90s, it was coming back. And then it came back. Um, I mean, there's been a couple of adjustments. There's been nothing like that. I mean, and I funny. assume that when the dot com, when when the startups, the dot com business went through the roof, Silicon Valley went through the roof. They have all this cash, right? That people had, and they're investing in art. Or yeah, there's you know, it's it's sort of like it's not my market so much because a lot of the high end contemporary, like all of a sudden you started seeing a lot of artists. You know, if you go back, I don't know, fifteen years, there weren't too many artists, contemporary artists, that were selling for over a million dollars. Mm-hmm. But now, if I named artists that sell for over a million dollars, you wouldn't know the half of them. You know, contemporary artists. Uh-huh. Um, These are people that are alive. People that are alive. Some and that selling are young. Their, selling their art in the primary sale, their first sale, which means they're getting it. Well, no. Uh, uh, a lo- you know, I'm talking a lot about auction. Oh, okay. Where they, you know, but when they're selling for a million dollars, all of a sudden, and the gallery... You know, and they're let's say they're getting half, whatever. But there's mm-hmm. amazing number of artists. You know, that it's like we've never even heard of that are millionaires that are making that are that are that are that work sells for over a million dollars, and some oh. some for you know five million. And uh, my uh, my friend sounds bought, like a bubble brewing. 
well, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, and there's bubbles along the way. Certain artists, you know, kind of fall off. But and so I guess that is the art of art collecting, knowing how to choose, right? It, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend about that, about the the value of art. You know, what makes something, what gives something value? Mm-hmm. You know, um, someone's willing to pay a certain price. But you could you could look at something, I mean, it's happened to me, where... Uh, you know, there might be some, you know, a painting that I'm not crazy about. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's starting to sell for big money. And you start looking at it a little differently. What am I missing? You know, and then you convince yourself, oh, yeah, that's a million dollar painting. And so you became a, a private art dealer yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. And at some point you owned a gallery. Yes. Yeah, so, how did that happen? Well, so I was a private dealer in the apartment uh, until uh, 90. I had a son that was born in 93. Mm-hmm. And then I had another son born in 94. So at that point, we had a two-bedroom. And so my office was one of the bedrooms. And that became, half of it became, you know, for Will. And then when Matt was born, <laughs> I got kicked out. Mm-hmm. So I got a, a small gallery in, in Soho, like on the 10th floor of this building that, you know, nobody ever came to. But it was an office and it was like, I was still kind of a private dealer. but yeah. uh, And that was three years and then I moved to Chelsea, 97. Where you are now? Yeah. And how did that happen? Uh, that's a beautiful space. Yeah. Yeah, I got lucky because my landlord down in Soho, Lafayette Street, 225 Lafayette, was a real jerk, horrible person. Uh, and he came in one day, he goes, I'm doubling your rent. I go, really? Because I guess at that point, maybe I was month to month. I said, you can't do that. You know, uh, yeah, I can. And Chelsea was just starting to get hot. There was There was... A number of galleries, 10, 10 15 mm-hmm. galleries had moved to Chelsea. And so uh, that's where I looked. And on the corner was this building. It was just being finished. Yeah, his building is on the corner of 23rd and 9th? 10th. 10th. Yeah, Right yeah. there on the corner. Right next to the High Line. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's beautiful. I walked by it. Oh, you walked yeah, by yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's like exactly what you would want a gallery experience to be. Yeah. The building is, is a work of art. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. is amazing. You know, so I mm-hmm. got... And I, I took the second floor... There was another gallery on the first floor, oh. and the sculpture garden was another gallery. So three galleries. No, no, it was it was it was, it was uh, the gallery on the first floor had the sculpture garden. Got it. And then I was on the second. Uh-huh. And then after like three years, he was always complaining, "Ah, business is horrible." And 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 then I was starting to have my eye like, "Oh boy, wouldn't this be special to have the whole building?" And he goes, "I don't know. I'm thinking maybe." I go, "Yeah, it's horrible. I th- I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it too. But uh, <laughs> you should probably move." And so he did, and then. You took it over, yeah, and they built the stairs, and so yeah, wow. So that's that's been great, and then and then I started to do my comedy series. So that's sort of when the two worlds, you know, the videos, yeah, which are great, by the way. Oh, thank you. The first one I watched has to do with. Uh, so this is interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know if I can uh, be fair to it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about a piece of art, which is a, a bunch of candies put in the corner. You know maybe about two feet high, three feet out, two feet out. Yeah. It's just candies. You could pick it up and eat the candy. So it's in there and you're trying to sell this piece of art to a buyer. Right. And saying it's an interactive thing. You can eat it. You can change it. You can move it. It's like this. And what did you want? Half a million dollars or something? I think Uh, it was two million. Okay. Two million million dollars. Okay. So um, that's you sort of making fun of a certain part of the art market. 
Possibly. So that's so Maurizio Catalan, comedian. Yeah. Right. I, I was really curious to get your thoughts on on that. The banana. Yeah, the banana. That. For so those what is familiar, so what is that? That, that? That's the banana duct tape to the wall. It was it was a big thing. A, another performance artist showed up and ate it at one point and got so that's out not by the police. sellable. <laughs> well, <laughs> they did. They sold it. They sold they, it for a hundred thousand dollars. Well, okay, That's so then what to, It's a deteriorating piece of art, isn't it? Uh, well, he says you can replace it with another banana. <laughs> because it's like the candy in the corner, because you can replace yeah. the candy. Okay. So, well... But is that really a legitimate... I mean, a serious collector would buy uh, that? Yes? So, so, no? So that's a real piece of art. Did you know that? No, I did okay. not know that. So, that's so where, in other words, you did not make up something right. fanciful or That's extreme. why I love this episode. It's, okay. it's sort of my favorite, because it is the madness of art. Uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres is the artist. He died about 20 years ago of AIDS. He did The Candy in the Corner. And I went to the first show about 20 years ago with my sister, who's not interested in art, knows nothing. And it was all these different candy in the corners, like Hershey Kisses. And it was like the, you know, blue candy with the wrapper. Mm -hmm. And you could, and you know, like the, 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 can the blue candy was, it had a name um, of his lover. And it was 150 pounds. It was what his lover weighed of candy. And you can, you know, and it looked like the ocean and the sky and, and, and you could, you know, replace it. You could also put it in a different formation in the floor, mm -hmm. but you can eat it and then you can, you know, you can replace it. Hopefully they're still going to be making it. And back then at that show, it was $6,000. Back when? What back, year? So, so this is about, about uh, uh, early 2000s, 2002, mm -hmm. something like that. And uh, a, a good gallery, like a, like a well-known um, gallery. Uh, and and the and they were additions, which is really great. So it's an addition of three plus one artist proof. So in other words, you could he could sell four of the Hershey Kisses in the corner, you know. Yeah. And you, and you, what you get is you get a, a um, certificate signed by the artist, so that you otherwise. So it was six thousand dollars, and I said to my sister, you know what? She's like, she's like, what are they kidding? You know, like what are, are they insane? I said, mm -hmm. you know what? And it was kind of cool. I mean, it looked beautiful. The silver, you know, I mean, there was something about it that was, mm -hmm. but is it worth $6,000? I said, you know, we should probably buy it because you know, it's a good gallery and there's something about it, you know. And of course we didn't. You know, I just imagined her going to her husband and telling her mm -hmm. him that she bought this for $6,000. So, you know, in this episode, I'm asking $2 million mm -hmm. for the candy in the corner mm -hmm. because I didn't want to say higher because it gets kind of crazy, but- before I did that piece, one of those pieces came up at Christie's auction house, Candy in the Corner. Yeah. And sold for $8 million. Wow. So would you say that this that started- is, That is shocking. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Uh, right. But it started with somebody like Carl Andre. So Carl Andre is this guy, he's now 84 years old or something. He's in his 80s. Yeah. He would like put a bunch of bricks on the floor in the 60s, uh -huh. yeah, and then sell that or, or, or display that at an art gallery or something, right? And so yes. is that where it started? Did Carl Andre start that? Well, I mean, there's a relationship, you know, but I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that he started. I mean- Is that called minimalism? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you could go back to Duchamp, you know, with the, with the snow shovel. He just, you know, this is- What's the snow shovel? So it's, 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 he just took a snow shovel and he called it- um, an accident about to happen or something like that. So is this kind of art, but, not, to, not to sound elitist about it, but is it taken seriously by the 
art world or oh yeah oh very is. very much yeah um i mean now and it's not controversial now it's, it's not controversial it's just oh i it, think it is just, well comedian was, was definitely controversial and i i i the you know he's i'm assuming the artist is an absurdist probably i i i don't know you mm -hmm. know i don't know what his other work is like but it seemed like it was designed to generate this is exactly, the banana thing yeah yeah it seemed like it was designed to generate exactly what it generated candy in the corner seems a little different to me because the way you describe it, it is actually beautiful. There's something yes. aesthetically pleasing about, right. about it as opposed to a banana literally just duct taped to a wall, right. which seems more purely absurd than mm -hmm. and And, and what made it absurd was that someone paid 120000 for it. Yeah. Until then, it was just like, you know, but once someone pays... So why would you pay that if I could go out and buy candy and put it in my corner? Well, that's... I mean, that's the the great thing about the episode is because that's what he says to me, the guy I'm trying to sell it to. You know, he he has a lot... $2 million he wants to spend. I go, here it is. This is what you should buy. And he goes, <laughs> I could go to Costco and buy candy and put it in the corner. It'd be the exact same thing. I said, no, because then it would just be candy in the corner. This is art. <laughs> but, yeah. but Carl... I mean, but Felix Gonzalez-Torres is a serious artist, you know. So when he... Is that the guy that did the banana? The candy. No, the candy he did the candy okay and so uh i mean he it wasn't him that said oh this should be worth two million dollars i mean you know what i mean so you have to you have to separate the money from the from the art like if somebody did that say that's really beautiful you know wh what is it worth i don't know you know is it worth two six thousand yeah so he real actually that he just creates the art at the gallery he comes in with his candies and creates it and then leaves and that's it's there yeah it's not like he did this in his studio it was an idea. Like, I mean, really, yeah. it was just, you know. Yeah. Um, an installation. Well, if you go to the Whitney, uh, in, in the hallway, there's light bulbs that go all the way up. And that's also his, just regular light bulbs. Mm -hmm. And um, So Torres has never heard of a paintbrush. I don't know of any paintings. He doesn't own a I don't know of any paintings. But, you know, I remember seeing the candy at, the, you know, the museum at the modern... And and I thought, oh man, that's fun. You could eat it, and you know. Yeah, so I was gonna say, I mean, light bulbs. That's functional too. Like, is that is that an element of his work? Is it always stuff that has some kind of functional element to it? A, a, a lot of it is is sort of somewhat interactive. Like, also, he does these stacks of posters, and you can take take them. You know, uh, whatever whatever. Sometimes it's just a word in the middle, but they're free. And then they just reprint them and stack them up, you know. Yeah. And and they do sell those, you know. Galleries sell them, and again, you you have the right to it. You have the paper. Didn't Yoko Ono in the '60s have like a ladder set up at a gallery with a magnifying glass at yep. the top, and you had to climb up the ladder and look through the magnifying yes. glass to see what it was? And you remember what it was? I don't recall. That's how John met met Yoko. He looks in, and he thought it was going to say like "Go to hell" or whatever, and it just says "Yes." <laughs> and he loved that so much because it was so positive, you know. Yeah. And I love that, you know. I've done three different shows with Yoko. Is that right? At the gallery. So you know Yoko. I know Yoko because when the war started, Iraq War in two thousand three. Uh huh. You know, and of course, I had written to Yoko uh, over the years. I was a big fan, and I had sent her a letter, and I got on her Christmas list. I got a card, you know, Merry Christmas, Yoko. You know, uh, but I never met her, but I knew Bag One. Uh, her her studio had to get in touch with her. So I called up and I spoke to her assistant. And I said, I have a gallery on 10th and 23rd with a big window. And if Yoko wants to put something in the window, you know, Rack War starting, it's her window. And so they called back, they go, you know, Yoko's so grateful. She And she sent down Imagine Peace. And we hmm. put it in the window for like four months. Really? Imagine Peace. And then she came to the gallery. You know, Was it for sale? Nope. And in fact, almost everything we did 
with her was not for sale. In fact, nothing was for sale, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, we did the wishing tree. Do you know that piece of hers? No, I do not. Oh, it's fantastic. I saw it in, in, uh, in, uh, at the Guggenheim in Venice the first time. It's a tree. And we put oh, it there's on. little things you could take off and read or something? No, no, you put on. Oh, you put on. You just right, write okay. a little message and you put it on the wishing tree. You put your wish. Oh, yeah. And so it was the most popular thing we ever had in the sculpture garden. Wow. Because people, you know, and it's so simple. Interactive. It's so beautiful. You know, we, she told me what kind of tree to get. I got the tree and the strings and, the, and she sent over pencils and that was it, you know? So, so you have you to make it? it? Well, I... No, I, I bought the tree. I didn't, you know, uh, yeah. she sent over the, there was nothing to make, you know? It was well, just- you, you helped install it, at least. Yeah, oh, yeah, I put the, you know, I put the tree You, had, you so were a part of its creation. You've since built. met her. Yes, yeah. so she came when we had in, in the window, and then she came, I did a political show, mm -hmm. and she sent me a, a war is over, if you want it, poster for the, for the show, mm -hmm. and we put a big one in the window also. And then she, she gave it to me after the show, which is so sweet. I have on my wall still. But oh, wow, she, that's cool. she came to the opening. My kids were there. Mm -hmm. And uh, my son, Will, was, was like about 14 or something. And so I have a picture of Yoko with, with him and, the, and my two kids in the band. And uh, I said, yo, Yoko, my son's got a band. And, and you know, what's the name? It was, and I love this name. It's called Wasted Hello. <laughs> and it was only around, you know, for a month or something. And Yoko loved that. So the next week I get a call from her assistant and her assistant's kind of laughing a little. She goes, um, I just spoke to Yoko and she asked me if you could tell her if Wasted Hello is playing anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to Will, I said, Will, Yoko wants to know if you guys are playing. I said, right now it's just in our garage, you know, <laughs> but it was, that was great. I love that. So, so yeah, so I met her a number of times and I bumped into her at, at art fairs a couple times. Really? And when I do... She's so sweet. She introduces me like she's with us. She goes, oh, he, she goes, he's very brave. Like I'm brave because I put that in the window. She thought it made mm. me brave, you know? So I, yeah, so Yoko, I got to, you know. Does the art world, the art dealers tend to be um, shy of politics or conservative uh, in taking a stand politically? Uh, I, I would say most are, I mean, you mean in, t in terms of the gallery and the art they show? Right. Well, I mean, would they be so quick to hang a piece of art that was so clearly, you know, making a political I statement? I mean, uh, no, I think a lot would not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think some certainly would, you know, I have a, another window now on 10th Avenue and I, and I put a lot of. And yet, isn't that funny? Cause art, the purpose of art is probably to make a political statement often yeah the artwork getting more political right now because of the political climate i think it's again? yeah you know I, one of my friends charlie uh, is, is is a good friend an artist i've shown for 30 years and uh you know he's saying it's, it's getting hard to make art because you know uh and if you're not making because the world is art, so absurd yeah i mean yeah. <laughs> in other words but but if you're making abstract paintings it's, it's yeah. it seems like what am i doing yeah. i'm making you know and the world's like burning and what yeah. Know? So he made this beautiful neon, not neon, but a lit sign in old, like uh, diner kind of lettering that says "hopeful." And uh, we have it over my desk. But it's also he did twenty five footers in in two cities so far, and he's doing one in Asbury Park. We think coming up, mm -hmm. and it's, it's just cool. People love it. You know, it's yeah. like okay. So are you? Do you have a specialty? Does your gallery like if you want this kind of art? Yeah. Go to the Jim Kempner Fine Art Gallery. Well, uh, when I first started, it was I was I I was. A specializing in contemporary master prints, you know, because that, that was my love. Mm -hmm. But it quickly, when I had the gallery, I started to, 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 uh, to represent artists. So I, I, I sell, it's all contemporary, 
what we would say contemporary. I mean, I sell post-war, meaning like after 1960, a lot of the older prints, but the artists that I'm showing now are contemporary. They're working now. I see. When you and say I, contemporary, they're alive. Is that uh, what that means? Uh, I mean, some contemporary art, the artist might not be alive, but yeah, it's being made in the last 20 years. And is it all print or is it ever unique oils? Yes, no, no. But now since I had the gallery, I, I represent painters and photographers mm-hmm. and sculptors. So I sell, I sell more unique work than I do prints. And does your gallery have a reputation for a certain part of the market? I mean, because Jim Kempner has a, you know, has good taste or, or has Well, I hope so, feel, you know. Yeah. Well, what happens a lot, I still get people that, are, that will say, oh, they told me that if I want a, a print to come to you, and I'm like, this is going on for 20 years. I'm like, uh-huh. please don't, don't tell them that, because then it's like, oh, he's only prints. No, no, I I'm see. not. Yeah. yeah, I haven't been only prints for 20 years and people still remember that, you know, but. So on your website, you mentioned the kind of people that you sell to, uh, designers, corporations, museums actually buy, museums actually go to galleries and buy stuff. I, you know, not enough. And and uh, and uh, I, I sometimes, we don't do enough outreach uh-huh. for museums, but the first drawing show with one of my artists, Jay Kelly, very first show of beautiful little drawings, the Met, someone from the Metropolitan came and bought four drawings. I mean, that was like really fantastic. And um, so that's, they do do that museum. Yeah, they, they do uh, a lot of times like Charlie has some, uh, Charlie Hewitt has some woodcuts in the Whitney through collectors, collectors that are on the board and that love the work. And so they, they had it, you know, at the board meeting, and and so some of his big uh-huh. woodcuts are in there. And then art advisors. Yeah. So what's what, an art advisor? Yeah. Well, again, it could be like I'm an art advisor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like an art dealer. So somebody like Jeff Bezos hires an art advisor to help him buy art or invest in art. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I mean, what the, that is? Is that yeah. what an art advisor? There are high end art advisors who are known for you know, and then there's people that have friends that have friends that want to buy art that you know I know I know the, a lot of the galleries. Come on, I'll show you around. I'm an art advisor. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's all levels of it. Got it. Yeah. Hey, but you don't get walk ins. Jeff Bezos came in. Is that right? Yeah. He walked. Speaking in. of, he walked in by himself and uh, unannounced. Unannounced. And you recognized him? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I was busy trying to make a sale, like like in the back, right? And uh, he walked past me with his baseball cap. I didn't recognize him, but my director at the time came and said, Jim, Jeff Bezos is here. And I, so I had my, my clients I've been working on for like 20 minutes. I'm like, excuse me, got, I got to go. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I went out just as he was leaving. And I caught him like outside the door, you know, because I want, you know, and I said, Mr. Bezos, Mr. Bezos, Mr. Jeff, uh, hi, I'm Jim. Thanks for coming to the gallery. And how did did he react to that, by the way? He was very cool. He was like, oh, oh, nice gallery. You know, and he liked one of the pieces very much, which makes sense because we have an artist that carves heads out of books. Carves heads out of books. So it looks like this beautiful uh, uh, bust of, of Einstein right from the front and when you look around the back you see it's all books huh. and all the pages are carved so I it's all- I've actually seen a- pictures of this work yeah. oh is that right yeah wow. and so uh and and is it still in the gallery but this is funny yeah it's still in the gallery uh-huh. yeah come by <clears throat> he uh he spoke to S- sarah about it he asked and he and sarah said oh can i have your email address and he said yeah okay and he gave the email address which I guess I could say it here because, you know, it was like the most ridiculous 
No, you shouldn't say it. No, I'm not going to say it. But, just cut it but out it, it's the most yeah. obvious, the most obvious. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I wrote to him, I didn't hear back. I mean, it was like, are you? Is this? This is not. You know, this yeah. is. This was like anyone that had two guesses would guess it. Okay, yeah, that's totally. all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he never wrote back. But yeah, and he we, never bought it. I mean, we have uh, everybody walks in. So, um, but you, you, as far as walking traffic, oh yeah, yeah I mean, uh, incredible. You get walk-in traffic, but do you get a lot of walk-in sales? We do. Yeah. I just did a whole, I just wanted to see what kind of sales I, I made from new people in the last year that, that I didn't know before that walked in and bought something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's substantial, but I mean, my so so are my expenses. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, but yeah, we, we make approximately 10 sales a month from new people. Uh-huh. Which is, which seems like a lot. And it is a lot. You make a sale a day? Um, on average, uh, the days that we're open, probably on average, yeah. And do you sell online as well as in store? Yes, but you know, it's like someone sees us online and they send us an email, and uh -huh. then we we have a new web page that's going to be you know where you can just hit a button and and like order it with a credit card. We that we haven't done. Uh huh. That's kind of hard, you know. But galleries are doing that. Galleries are doing that. Yeah. But you, I mean, ha you haven't gotten there yet. No, you can do that with prints because, you know, if people know the print, if they've seen it somewhere else mm -hmm. and you tell them the condition, they know what they're buying. If it's a drawing or painting, you kind of got to see it in person, mm -hmm. you know, usually. Something, Kevin, you'd be interested in, um, maybe this is a question you wanted to ask, uh, is the whole notion of artist royalties. Um, so when a painter paints a painting and it sells initially in the primary market, or let's say ten thousand dollars, yeah, and then the painter will make five thousand. The gallery takes five thousand, um, and then that painting goes up in value and sells for a hundred thousand dollars in the secondary market. The artist doesn't get anything. However, in Europe, they do. Oh, really? In nineteen twenty, I believe France instituted the first artist royalty, so they get four percent, I think, up to uh, up to thirty-five thousand in royalty payment, and then above that, it's like point two five percent or something. Uh, is that transferable? Like, transfer uh, like if the artist dies, you know? Yes. Like, it, well, the, the it, it the goes family? on for 70 years, I think, after the death, right? Mm -hmm. It goes to the estate. Um, and then most of Europe has adopted this whole notion of artist royalties. And they've tried to uh, enact that here in the United States, but it keeps getting voted down because the most gallery owners, I think, or uh, several people in the market don't want it because they think it's going to hurt the market. And other people argue that it's going to help the market. Uh, California instituted a law imposing an uh, artist gallery, but in, in 2018, the law was struck down as uh, uh, interfering with or being in conflict with the federal copyright law. Federal copyright law takes precedence, and so states can't enact laws that deal with the same issue as copyright. Uh, so we don't have artist royalties in here in the United States, and they don't have them in China either, which is the second largest art market. Isn't that right? It's, it's become a huge, huge... Armor. So what do you think about artist royalties? Do you have an uh, opinion about it? Would it hurt the galleries? Would it help the galleries? Would it not even be an issue? Uh, I, I don't think it would impact my gallery very much. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there's a famous um, uh, auction from the, the 70s. Uh, Skull was his name. He owned taxis. Uh, and there's a... Ethel Skull was his wife. There's famous... Warhol portrait of her that they had bought, you know, and 
And uh, they had a huge contemporary collection. And so there was an auction. He was auctioning a lot of his stuff off for the first time. And a Rauschenberg came up, you know, that he paid, you know, I don't know, $500 for, and it sold for like 100000 And Rauschenberg was in the audience, <laughs> and he was drunk. He went up to him afterwards. He goes, you owe me. You owe me. And Skull goes, no, I don't owe you. Now all your things are worth that. <laughs> and so it was like, oh wow, you know. So so that's that's the argument. I think Rauschenberg is one one of the artists that pushed for getting artist royalties in the United States, right? Yeah, I, yeah. That's yeah. probably why he showed up drunk. Yeah. He, was, he was he was yeah not not and it's on tape too. It's on it's on. You can see it. Uh, it was but a if movie. I, if I think about it though, I can't really draw a distinction between art, fine art, and an, a song, right? I mean, they're both pieces of art that are selling in the secondary market shouldn't the artist like enjoy the fruits of the value of it um it's complicated though because if you buy you know of let's say you buy a piece of vinyl record you and then you resell it on you're you're not you're not you know taking that money and and passing it on to the artist you know like if you have a you know a first you know a first pressing that's unopened of of like a velvet, you know, the velvet underground and Nico, you know, that, and you resell it and make a bunch of money on it. It's like that money's not going on to yeah, anyone. Yeah, but then I would argue that the artist's work is not the vinyl record; it's the song, right? Yeah. Okay. That's 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 a solid argument. Um, it's a non-issue. That the bigger issue is that recorded music just isn't worth anything anymore. Period. You know, like that. So your attitude is just sort of like it hasn't helped composers. It's not going to help artists. It, <laughs> well, art I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it. I haven't given enough thought to know whether I think it would would help the art world or not. Yeah. I would say you know the the musicians are not fairly comp, uh, compensated for music anymore. Um, regardless of that you know because recorded music is not if if what you're saying is true and that the vinyl record itself um is isn't a part of it it's like the music itself isn't worth anything anymore it's like digital music is practically free yeah yeah i i think it does make sense because there's artists i mean because it's not true that because an artist makes a, a a work of art that all of a sudden is you know uh, um recognized let's say and all of a sudden, you know, 10 years later, it sells for $10 million. Well, th that's not saying that everything that artist makes now is is as valuable. It might be, he might have moved on and maybe no one wants what he's even doing. Mm -hmm. But that that one piece that he had this epiphany, uh, you know, maybe he should get, you know, a, a, a piece and of it's that. even not that that much. No. Right? Yeah. We're not even talking I, about much. Yeah. I think we should, I mean, I, I think we should do it, but I'm, but I'm not in that business. So it's I like think my it, opinion yeah. doesn't really matter. I think dealers are worried it's going to comp, complicate things you can't get more complex than sharing publishing rights revenue for songwriters mm. you know because they have to keep tabs on how songs are actually uh broadcast on the radio and how, and how do you do so they have associations to deal with that right yeah. and it's worked out just fine you yeah. know they figured it out and i would imagine that the art world is not as complicated as the music world and so they could figure it out. I think the auction houses have killed the legislation most for the most part, not right, the gallery right. Yeah, I'd be okay with it. Yeah. Well, in the music world, though, also technically, anytime you're like hearing music in a restaurant, the person should be compensated for it. And nowadays, no one is. Every you know, every restaurant has Spotify or whatever playing, and like that license is actually supposed to be for personal use. You you know, like you 
purveying alcohol and playing music like right. that's that's technically but a doesn't voice. spotify now i th- correct me if i'm wrong doesn't spotify have a option uh so when a restaurant is is using spotify in the restaurant they have to pay the public fee to spotify and spotify is supposed to distribute it to ascap and bmi I, that might be the case but i've certainly worked at places where people are just they're just violating they're violating hooking their phone yeah i don't know that that's yeah so tell me um uh is business good these days how's the art market today the art market uh is there's different sectors that are very good you know pace just opened this mega gallery you know the big galleries gagosian and pace and his werner and how's your own chelsea yeah Uh but i mean gagosian's got hong kong la paris you know all over the world Mm -hmm. um and i think oh this is something that you could do too you could open up a london (laughs) gallery yeah Will you run it, Gary? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I could. But no, for me, business has not been uh, terrific, really, since since Trump's elected. I mean, I don't know, but but it it it, the last three years have been kind of of tougher. Um, There's a relationship between Trump and the art market. Well, I I I mean, for me, every month is close as to if I have a like a like. A lousy month or or a good month, it could be one sale, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but business is is has picked up lately. I don't, you know, I can't tell you exactly why. Mm-hmm. Um, so but, uh, Kevin yeah. asked before: Is art getting more political? Uh, contemporary art. Uh, By the way, is the music getting more political? Um, I'm not hearing it, but uh, I I I would say so. Absolutely, um, I would say there's. There's a lot more. I mean, music's always pretty political in the underground. I would say there's a fair amount. You know, there's a Kendrick Lamar. Pretty his stuff is pretty political. J Cole, like the in the hip hop and R and B world. You know, Beyonce's more recent stuff is fairly political. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's it talks more about like the African American struggle, but it's I would say I would say it's political. Um, Jay Z, you know, political. So um, I would say uh, I would say absolutely, it's gotten more political. And that's not true, or is true in the art world. Or? I think there's more uh, galleries that are putting on political shows, looking for political shows. I think artists that have always been political are political. Um, uh, you know, artists that haven't been so political sometimes. You know, but I think you'll see more of it just because I, I want. In fact, I'll I'll do a, a shout out now. For uh, October, I want to do a political show, you know, before the election. Uh-huh. And I was going to have like sort of an open call for artists, writers, uh, uh, any any anyone really that that has something that's political that they think might fit on a wall or in a gallery. Uh, I'd you know love to see it. That's, I would imagine the passions are so high right now, mm. political passions that uh, I, don't, yeah. I would think it'd be driving the value of older political work up as well uh-huh. you know like artists who were doing political work in the 60s and uh, you know and in the 30s in germany you know like i would think that stuff would be getting you know especially the stuff that was sort of anti-authoritarianism from the 30s like would be worth more now i think it's worth more to some museums and and that are interested but collectors i don't know are funny a lot of collectors you know they get enough politics from the newspaper and the, and the TV that that they not, don't necessarily want to buy you know 
uh, something to remind them. I mean, there's others that 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 want it, but well, yeah. I mean, I, that that's sort of why I asked that question because I was curious if it was because there is also an argument. There's there's a sector of the music world which I feel like has gone in the other direction, which has become less political because they feel like people are so inundated with yeah, yeah. politics all the time. But you know, then again, like Childish Gambino, this is America. Like that was super super political the video too. You know. Yeah, so, you mean there's a calculation in the music world that the market will not does not want politics in their music. I and don't know so, if the market as a whole is thinking like that. I think it's more there's some artists who 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 feel who feel that way, mm-hmm. who feel like that they're just getting bombarded with politics constantly, mm-hmm. and that it might even not even be a conscious thing. It might be a more just when they retreat to their their lab, you know, and they start cooking in the lab and making music, they're just like, at that point, they might just be politicked out, you know? Now, Kevin is a composer mm. and a musician. Is your music, any of your music, political? Um, I would say my music is political, but usually in fairly subtle ways. I mean, I, I named the band after a reference to George Gross's autobiography because it was... You know, he was talking about how fascism comes, you know, mm-hmm. because and, and that because the problem is that people's attitude is like, you know, a small yes and a big no, because it was it's like it often does fix little problems and just creates much bigger ones. Um, mm-hmm. And I named the band that, you know, it was funny because I named the band that during George W. Bush when it felt like, oh, my God, this is fascism, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I named the band that. And then during the Obama era, it was like the band name kind of became like whatever, and then all of a sudden, you know, with the rise of like Trumpism, it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, relevant right, fascism. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden the band name, the, the band name is political again, it, turn, it turns out. Mm-hmm. I, I would wanna, say I feel guilty about not doing more political music. Yoko is pretty political. Maybe it's benign politics, though. Yeah, it's usually benign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're going to start seeing we're going to start seeing movies after Post-Trump, we're going to start seeing movies pretty quickly with Trump being depicted, I'm well, pretty well, sure. Well, let's hope that's really soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I get, I get into heated political debates, uh, not with Trump people, because I Cause you can't reason don't know them, them or I, I, I just refuse. I just, you know. But 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 more like the Democratic, you know, my friend Charlie uh, uh, is, is, you know, he hates Bernie. I know a lot of people that... They just hate Bernie. Mm-hmm. That are like Democrats. That are you know. My yeah. mom says she'll vote for him if he gets the nomination, but she she doesn't love him. But she'll she'll she's one hundred percent going to go out and vote for him if he gets the nomination. But she yeah she doesn't she doesn't really love him. Do you think uh, Bernie can beat Trump? I think our election is so compromised at this point that I, I I don't I don't really think I don't know if anyone can beat him. I you know like is that what, a worry you have? I mean, do you think somebody like moderate, like Amy Klobuchar or Biden, has a better chance of beating Trump, or maybe Bernie's passion and I don't know has a how chance? how much integrity remains in our in our voting process. We have no paper trail in so many states. Like we we know that you know foreign foreign governments are straw donoring money. Um, we know that you know there's hacking going on. We you know even the Republican governor of Florida has said that, you know, Russia penetrated their voter rolls. Like, it's is this going even going to be a fair election? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's what's scary is that if if Trump does lose, he's going to say exactly that. That's why he may not 
want to leave so fast. But yeah. that's I a mean, nightmare, right? He refuses to leave. Oh my. So now we're going to have to wait till inauguration day for the new president to send in the military to get him out. I, 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 even though Bernie was not my first choice in the first place, at this point, I wish Bernie would, would, would win hands down. If we, if it's a brokered convention, I, I don't think there's any way we're going to win, no matter who gets the nomination. So what I want at this point is for Bernie to just absolutely start cleaning up and, and then at least sort of unify the party. I tell you, though, he's got this bulldog attitude or persona that would be attractive to a Trump voter, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument that's always made is that he does well with independents who voted for Trump. That's one of, one of the arguments for Bernie, so mm-hmm. maybe. I, I, mostly, I, I mostly agree with Bernie's poli- policies. I'm, I would say 98%. I, I, I agree with his policies. And I, think I, he has I, and I don't know sh- what the big worry is, is. He can't get more than probably 30% of the stuff that he wants passed. But, you know, it's okay to go extreme in the other direction just to get to the middle. You know? Right. I mean, so, yeah, shoot for the stars and hit the moon kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, and, I, and I imagine if somebody like Biden is running against Trump, he's just going to get eaten alive. It just feels like he. I get think so alive, too. I mean, we're, you know? there's no passion. There's no yeah. excitement. Yeah. I mean, I we we need fire, you yeah. know. And and I mean, the it worries me though that that I know so many people in the art world and stuff that 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 are so anti-Bernie. And why are they anti-Bernie? Well, I I got into a thing with one of one of my artists uh, um, at a at a dinner. That uh, she invited me to just me and her, but we were talking. Somehow it came up about Hillary. She still upset about Hillary. She blamed Bernie for Hillary, and so I said, "Well, I think Bernie uh, might have beaten Trump. I think he would have beaten Trump. I mean, some of the polls. I think show, he would have beaten Trump back then. Yes, I think he would have yeah. back then. Yeah, yeah. And she said, "You're an idiot." And you're, I mean, she really got like, and I was just. You know, uh, I don't know how you can hate Bernie. Quite frankly, I just find. I, I mean, funny. I I find it just just. But it's, it, it's the same way that I don't know how you can hate Bernie. I don't know how you could like Trump. It's just I, I I'm not well, in touch with. <laughs> those that really feelings. bugs me when yeah. when and and the New York Times had written an article like comparing Trump and and Bernie. Bernie's probably the fastest of the Democratic candidates to blame the press on things or say the press yeah, is lying. I mean, I I would He's say like Trump I would in that say way. Bernie supporters. There's a a. Certainly a, a portion of them, which are a, li- a bit like Trump supporters in that they're 100% all in and, you know, this, the establishment's out to get, get him. And like, there, there's some similarities in the Kool-Aid drinking. Sort of that I deep state like sort of so, And some of the supporters. And some of yeah. the supporters. Yeah. I, there's a, a similar cultish vibe, I would say. Right. But the Bernie's supporters. not a liar, right? No. No. He's not a liar. No. Like, well, that's the oh. thing that he's got going, uh, uh, you know, he's genuine. Yeah. Whatever you think, it's like you, you never doubt that he's like and, Hillary and, and, didn't and have this that. What's crazy is that the Trump supporters think that their guy is genuine. Well, that's because that's he says know. what comes to his mind, even though it's a lie. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's a, and I mean, I got I got it when he was running, in, you know, against the other Republicans yeah. on the stage. He made all the others look like you know lying buffoons because they were. I mean, they were just saying political bullshit, you know. And yeah. and, and he was not. He was saying you know. Stuff that seemed refreshing to 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 his. He was saying the shit that they've been dog whistling for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. he would just come out and say it. You know. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's it, we're. In... <laughs> so is there a relationship? Getting back to the art world. Yeah. And you. Yeah. Jim. Um. What's the relationship between Trump getting elected and and business falling off? 
Um, Any idea? I don't know. Maybe it was me. Maybe I got so depressed that I like didn't do my job. I don't know. The high end is doing terrific. You know, mm-hmm. people that are buying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of you know or paintings. Uh, you know, for the billionaires are buying art. Oh, the billionaires. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. One percent or the half of one percent. Um, you know, I know a lot of dealers that are you know struggling. Uh, some are are doing well. Some have had good years, you know. So, but I think a lot of a lot of dealers are struggling mm-hmm. now. So, Jim, really, thank you so much for coming. Is there anything else that you want to like tell us about? Well, thanks. Did you leave no, I, anything? I, wait, out? wait. I got one more question. Yeah. Like, who's your? I have two questions for you about favorite artists. Who's your favorite kind of all time? Like, who's your guy? You know, yeah, like yeah. I, I have like if people are like. Who's your favorite band? Even if I haven't listened to them in years, uh, uh, you know, even if I've been taking a break, I always say spiritualized. They're just my favorite band. Uh, um, so who's your favorite? Just your just does it for you artist. And then who's your favorite of like who's hot right now? Uh, my favorite artists. Well, I'd have to say two. One is Rauschenberg. <laughs> and he's and, like collages. Uh, well, it's so many things. I mean, he's yeah. so, di- if you came into the gallery now, I have a piece on the wall that looks like a box. It's been broken, but it's, it's ceramic. Uh-huh. Um, so he did, you know, the combines, which were paintings. Is he still alive? Sculpture. No, no. He died, boy, 10, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, from the combines to the pieces on fabric, to, I mean, the most experimental, mm-hmm. um, and interesting and anything could be art. You know the cardboard boxes on the on the uh, so um, so it's Rauschenberg and Mark Rothko would be number two and I mean I always like Rothko but I I've do you know the play Red? It's a play about Mark Rothko. It's a great play. It's a two person play. Is Rothko the floating squares? Yes, like okay. the two fuzzy squares. Yeah, right. Know? Yeah. Um, so I did the play. I've done it three times, three different times. And as an actor, as an actor. Uh-huh. Oh wow! Yeah. And I played Rothko, and which is kind of perfect. He was he was a Russian Jew mm-hmm. around my age, and so it's. I mean, I could play play it for another ten years probably, but it's a great play and a great role. Won the Tony ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Who, which uh, museum has Rothko in New York? MoMA. MoMA has got it. Yeah. Uh, MoMA. A permanent is yeah, permanently on the wall. Yeah. yeah. I and the and the Whitney uh, definitely has. Uh, I don't know if it's permanently on the wall. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Uh, um, but MoMA would always have it, Rothko. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my two. Who's hot and who you think should be hot? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, one that pops to mind is Kara Walker. It's fabulous. Um, what is, uh, so she's, uh, she does these, these cutouts uh, um, of figures. A, a lot have to do with, like, you know, she's an African-American artist, so a lot of... The work has to do with very political mm-hmm. figures like Civil War. She's been in your gallery? Uh, has I mean, her art. Her, her art, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, she's done a number of, of uh, etchings and some uh, uh, prints that I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she did at the Sugar Factory in uh, the old Sugar Factory. Domino, yeah. She did this huge sculpture out of sugar. Did you see it? When oh, it was, no, but I read about it. Yeah. yeah that was incredible. Oh, that was you her. Know, okay. Out of, of like sugar. A, yeah. yeah. Well, it was. So I mean, the inside per- must have been. So it's but, not permanent. No, it was only. It was only uh, there as they were. I don't know. They're going to make it into some fancy something. But yeah. it was incredible. The factory was, uh-huh. and uh, it was like 
kind of this figure, like an Aunt Shemima face and a huge body, like naked woman. And um, uh, yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, so, I mean, that pops into mind. But there's, there's, there's quite a few, if I thought about it. And the Chelsea market, the Chelsea district art galleries here in Chelsea, that's still... This it's, is the center I, of art. I mean, uh, I, art galleries absolutely. in New York. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, it's there's so many now because the mm -hmm. Lower East Side. Has I assume has, Tribeca has some art galleries too. Tribeca, um, uh, more like a, a down by uh, a Church Street and Broadway, and mm -hmm. a lot of galleries are opening. Uh, but there's still, you know, within four blocks of my gallery, there's probably three hundred galleries. I mean, you have to have wow. one of the most prominent yeah. locations. For galleries, yeah, Chelsea, I'm like right? ground zero. Twenty third and yeah, ground zero, right? <laughs> when I got in there, there was nobody north of me, but yeah, but soon after, you know. So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, appreciate is, you coming. Yeah, thanks been, so much. This right. has been fantastic. Thank you guys.